Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail, and this week I'm really excited. We have Roxana Saidi. She's the founder and CEO of Tash, which is a pistachio milk company, a milk alternative. Call it call it whatever you want, but I'm really excited to talk about all things milk alternatives because it's a really fascinating space, especially now, but has always been for the last you know many, many years. Um, and I'm also interested to talk with just a CPG company that uh, is relatively new and growing in this new, interesting environment we're all living in. But Roxana, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Kale. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So um, for those who don't know you, why don't you just give a little background? Who, who are you? Where did you come from? Like all that. How did Tash start? Yeah, would love to. Tash is a family business. So I'm going to start at the very beginning. Okay. Um, Tash includes my father, Mortaza. Mortaza grew up in Iran. And um, he was at the time my boyfriend and now husband, Kyle. So my father grew up in the Middle East where pistachios are very prevalent. So to go way back to the beginning, um, I grew up in a very foodie family. I always say like food was our love language. So in my culture, in Persian culture, to give you an example of this, um, one way that we show love to friends, family, our community is when you have someone over for dinner, you wouldn't just put out, you know, one entree. You put out legitimately three, four entrees. You spent days making it. So I came from a very, very food focused with love, passion, and deep, deep roots in Persian culture. Um, so with that came pistachios. So I was the kid on the playground who had like a little Ziploc baggie of pistachios in my lunch, getting the funny, you know, side eye from my schoolmates. Like, what is she snacking on? But I loved it. And um, I had like very fond memories of all of the Persian delicacies that were a part of my household, but were seemingly very odd to everybody else. Um, With that, I grew up in San Francisco. So my mother had a very deep affinity for coffee. As a really young kid, starting as early as five, I I had this little bonding ritual with my mom and I would always go with her on Saturday mornings. We would walk out of our front door, go to our local coffee shop, and she would have a cappuccino every single day, usually two. So at five years old, I was always drinking the foam off my mom's cappuccinos. And so as I got older, I started to really want to know, what is this fuel beneath the foam that my mom is so addicted to? So within due time, I became the high school kid that really wanted to have coffee, wanted to have the carpool stop, grab some coffee on the way to school. It was just a deep affinity from coffee at a very early age. Um, So... Prior to launching Tash, my background was actually in marketing. I started my first company in 2011, which was really at the dawn of social media for brands. So I started a social social media agency in 2011 called RX Social, and I built the first social media accounts for quite a number of brands in food, hospitality, so Fairmont Hotels, Fred Siegel, worked with Revolve Clothing, a lot of really pretty big brands because it was really the, the earliest days of social media. Um, which was great. And so I grew that into a boutique size agency, ran that for about five years. And then um, we get to the origin story of Tash, um, which I will jump into. <laughs> so Tash was really actually, it fell into my lap really naturally. I, like a lot of people, we grow and our bodies, you know, you lose that enzyme that 
Uh, you just can't tolerate dairy as easily as you once could. And so I was a very early adopter of almond milk and all almond-based products. So Justin's almond butter and whatnot. And so I was traveling with my family, visiting my Iranian side of the family in Europe. And we had a really long Parisian lunch full of rosé. And at the end of this lengthy family lunch, I needed an espresso. And I was craving my go-to, which at the time was an almond milk latte. And so this is 2015. So I knew far better than to ask any Parisian. In Paris, you can <laughs> you cannot get that. I know that for a fact. I would have just been shunned right out of the restaurant. So as I'm thinking about how I wish I could have an almond milk latte, I had the classic entrepreneurial light bulb moment. And I just thought, wait a minute, why isn't anybody doing anything with pistachios? And wouldn't pistachio milk be even more delicious and just as healthy and dy more dynamic than this almond milk that I'm obsessed with that I order at every coffee shop that I go to. So that really spawned it all for me. And so I started peeling back the layers of the onion, trying to figure out why none of these large um, food and beverage companies were touching pistachios. And the answer is actually really obvious, and I'm sure we're going to get more into this, but it just boils down to supply chain. Super easy to make a $25 pistachio milk. What we do, which is make it a $7.99 price point pistachio milk, is incredibly challenging, and that's all rooted in supply chain. Got it. So, so what do you do? What do you do? How, how are we able to crack that nut? Yeah, how, yeah, yeah. How were you able to crack that <laughs> nut? Like, what, yeah, what made that work? Exactly. So, 2015, Tash comes to me. Right, we didn't launch until 2020. Okay. That took a lot of time for a couple of reasons. Supply chain actually wasn't one of them. What we're able to do with Tash that no one else has been able to do is create a pure pistachio milk. And what I mean by pure is that we don't use other nuts or other filler ingredients like rice, for example, or almonds or almond extracts to bring our cogs down. We do a pure pistachio milk. And we're able to do that because my father, who's from the region, we have family connections with farmers in the region who've been doing this for four, five generations. And through those relationships, we were able to establish the supply chain to create Tash at the price point that we wanted to. It was really, really important to me long before we launched. Actually, one of the first exercises I did was establish our COGS because I knew that if Tash was going to be priced at $10 or above, it actually wasn't a product I was going to pursue. That was my threshold. So when we came in at $7.99, then it was really a green light. Got it. And so, so was that like between 2015, 2020, that was what you were doing was just making sure all of those things worked or were you making the process work? How did you, how did, yeah. how did you dive into the, the nut milk making process with, uh, you know, given your background? Yes. Great question. So if you want to do a barista nut milk, there's a certain type of processing you have to do. And in North America, there's actually not a lot of manufacturers who do this, they do enormous volumes, a million units at a time, but there's not a lot of players. So they have the luxury of commanding exorbitantly high minimum order quantities. So that time, the bulk of it was really in trying to convince one co-packer to take me on because they would say, hey, Roxana, love the idea. We think you're great. This is compelling. Let us know when you're ready to do a million units of Tash. Have a couple million dollars in cash ready to go, and then we'll make this happen, right? No problem. So I truly had to scale the business long before we launched. And luckily, I found one co-packer who was willing to bring down their minimum order quantity for me and meet me in a comfortable place. It was still, you know, for a pre-launch company to do as 
a hundred thousand units, it's a huge undertaking. It's a huge yeah, risk. That's a, so that right? was that was the minimum they went down to was a hundred thousand? Just under, yeah. Okay. Which, you know, coming down from a million felt pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to scale the whole business before I even launched. So then how did you go about scaling the business? And this is a question that I probably I probably prepared for later on in the interview, but like I feel like there is a very specific playbook that is uh, a a milk alternative playbook, which is like Oatly, you know, that they went to baristas and then they were able right. to get people in there. Right. Is that what, is that what you were trying to do where you were trying to build that cultural cachet in cities or, but when, yeah. how did, were you able to do that while meeting that minimum order? Exactly. So the timing was really interesting because in 2015, the idea came to me. Oatly wasn't even in the U S at that point in time. So 2016 rolls around. I was living in New York City at the time and still do, but I remember distinctly when Oatly started to roll out through coffee shops, creating those relationships with the baristas. And I remember distinctly in some shops, signage would go up on the windows that said, we're sold out of Oatly, don't ask, you know? And it was like, it was just profound to me. I thought to myself, this market was already compelling in a lot of ways. Alt milk, I knew it was going to continue to grow but it really took on a new dimension with the advent of Oatly coming to the US. So yes, it was really building a lot of relationships at the food service level. So we're talking about specialty and third wave coffee throughout those years to be able to say, okay, this makes sense. We're gonna come in, we're gonna do this really large initial product um, production, but we do have a 12 month shelf life on our product. So we have a really nice runway where we don't have to worry about cold chain. We don't have to worry about spoilage. And we're going to work on building these relationships with these food service partners to really drive trial and awareness for this new category that we're building. Because you have to remember, pistachio milk was not a thing. Nobody knew what that was, how you drink it, why it's better, all of those things. So um, there was a lot of factors that went into to, to those years to ramp up to being able to launch at the end of 2020. I feel like we're in a really interesting moment with milk alternatives, and I, you'd be the right person to answer it. So I, I imagine if you went to a barista in 2017, or let's say in 2015, you would say, have my nut milk, you pour it. They'd be like, we already have soy milk. Why do I care? I mm. feel like after Oatly, they'd be like, absolutely, we're looking for more things now. And now we're in an interesting period where I wonder if like, uh, like there are like six different choices at, at, at shops these days. So are you fine? Like, what, where are we now in terms of the milk alternative place? And is it still, a, is it as not as much of a tough sell, but is it a different type of tough sell to get people to learn, to glom onto another like nut than, than before? Right. right. Great question. Yeah. There's no denying that, you know, alt milk fatigue has become a thing because of the, how many options. Right. But I think what has worked really well for us is two primary differentiating factors. One is on the health side and one is on the sustainability side. So on the sustainability side, I grew up in California. In 2015, we were experiencing our worst drought on record. At the same time, 99% of almonds that are consumed in this country are grown in California, where the almond trees require and soak up more water for the state than the inhabitants of California. Like, let that sink in. That's crazy. So we're talking a thousand gallons of water to produce one gallon of almond milk. With Tash, pistachios require 75% less water than almond trees. So if you live on the West Coast and front and center are 
almost daily, you're concerned about water. You're concerned about the drought, how dire it is throughout the entire West Coast. This is a really compelling fact to you if you're a shop owner, a retailer, even a barista, right? It's kind of hard to reconcile that situation if if you're drinking almond milk. And I come from a place where I'm, I love almond milk, right? I mm-hmm. was a avid consumer of it. So I say this with, you know, a token of, of sadness because it's a great product in my view. Um, but on the sustainability front, Tash is really a more environmentally friendly option. On the health side, there's this really in, like transformative moment that we're in right now where consumers are really understanding the ingredient label on most oat milks. A couple years ago, I would say, yes, and one of the unique selling points of Tash is that we don't have any oil in our product. And nine out of 10 people would look at me like I had 20 heads. They would turn their head to the side and say, what do you mean oil? Like, what are you talking about? And I would say, well, rapeseed oil is canola oil, and that's really bad for inflammation and X, Y, and Z. And now it's totally different. When I tell people that we don't have oil, they're nodding along and they're like, I know it's too bad. Like I had no idea. And so with Tash, you're still getting that really nice creamy consistency that you get with oat milk, but without any of the canola oil. And so how that happens is that if you just think about a pistachio, inherently it has a little bit of oil content, right? Whereas oats are extremely dry inherently. So we're able to achieve that velvety mouthfeel without adding industrial seed oils. Got it. Got it. And so let's go to 2020. What was the, who who was, was it all coffee shops and like specialty coffee shops that did that initial order? Was that how you went about it? We were split 50-50 between food service and direct-to-consumer. So given my background in building brands online, we were always going to launch direct-to-consumer, which proved to be a saving grace because we all know what happened in 2020. And so luckily we already had a D2C play in place, and that was always part of our go-to-market strategy. So then talk to me, what month did, well, what month did you launch? Sure. So we were supposed to launch summer, early summer of 2020, and we wound up launching November of 2020. Okay. Wow. All right. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of things changed. How did, like, how did you go about the rollout? What was, what was the overall strategy with it? Was, did you change any of the initial, I guess, DTC messaging? Yeah. Walk me through how you went about all of it. Yeah. It was pretty crazy because I had spent pretty much, um, 2018, 2019, building those relationships. And I had verbal yeses from many coffee chains in the New York City area and in California. Some of them were quite large, you know, 15 doors, 20 doors, even larger partners, right? As soon as March rolled around, a lot, if not, 90% didn't even know how they were going to open their door at one point, right? So all of those yeses really went out the window seemingly overnight. And so... All we could really do at that point was lean harder into the direct-to-consumer channel we had already been working so diligently on. So the really the big question at that point in time was how do you drive sampling? And for us, that was incredibly challenging because we're a 32-ounce multi-serve container. It's heavy, it's a liquid. Luckily, it's not cold chain, but it's not, you know, a small ready-to-drink, it's not sample size. So we had to get really creative through various, you know, channels to drive trial, you know, marketing opportunities, donating a little bit of product to shops, 
anything and everything, we had to get creative and it was ever evolving. Week over week, there were new opportunities, which was great. But um, luckily, as shops started to open up, that really started to drive trial for us. So people would go into their local shop, West Village, Brooklyn, wherever. They'd see Tash on the menu either as a specialty drink, so like a specialty pistachio milk latte, or even just as like one of the alt milk options. Try it, love it, and then wonder, hmm, like, let me check this out. Check it out on Instagram or pistachiomilk.com if you can believe it. So incredibly easy to find us. And so that really worked well. And we would start gaining more and more um, like subscribers and um, through the direct the direct-to-consumer channel, despite how crazy it was um, at the food service level during the height of the pandemic. Wow. And so did you find that the, the sampling, most of the sampling happened in the coffee shops themselves, or did you do any other routes to try and get people to, to taste it? Yeah. It, it, the vast majority was through the coffee shops. Restaurants, cafes, some of the higher-end bodegas as well, boba, all things of that nature, but vast majority was through food service. Got it. And how long did it take you to sell out of your first order? Yes. So we sold out of our unsweetened original rather quickly, I think. So we launched at the end of November and we sold out by January. Um, We had one of our largest sales dates to date when we restocked the unsweetened, which was well, it was, it was a, it was a great day. We'll leave it at that. (laughs) That's great. So like, so, so walk me through the SKUs then. So you have unsweetened, sure. do you have sweetened? What, what, what was the initial rollout? What do you have now? Yes. So as of yesterday, Kale, we launched our third and fourth SKU. Congrats. Uh, we, it's been an exciting time. So yesterday was vanilla and unsweetened vanilla. And I'll go back to that. And our original two SKUs were the original and the unsweetened original. So with our originals, um, the unsweetened skews, we're just adding a very subtle amount of sugar. So they're just subtly sweet, six grams, very, very little. With most oat milks, you're getting at least twice that. Um, so a lot lower in sugar, calories, and carbs. Um, the vanilla skews we're particularly excited about because in this category, actually, vanilla is the category leader. And so Vanilla is actually the recipe that I was making in my little tiny studio kitchen back in 2015. Um, And we just now launched it yesterday and it's been doing fantastically. We're now going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Your professional background before this was as, you know, in a social media boutique agency. But when you launched was a specifically interesting time to be a, um, a digital marketer. Um, and so what what were the levers that you were pulling? Did you find they were working at all as well as, you know, 2012 when you were at your agency? I imagine maybe not, but maybe I'm wrong. But just like w- w- walk me through how you did that digital rollout and what was resonating with customers and if there were any surprising, pl- you know, channels that you found. Yes. So we really invested in a lot of our organic channels, actually. So at the onset, um, branding was incredibly important to me, given my background. So we um, really invested and took our time there. But from there, it was building out our organic social, partnering with influencers completely organically. We have we had probably not spent on paid until we reached about month 10, which is very atypical. Very atypical. Um, We did invest in PR and we had an amazing um, launch with respect to press. It was truly overwhelming. Um, 
but I did not invest in paid social at the time or, or search because I actually really wanted to understand our baseline without adding, pulling those levers. So interestingly, as the, as the timing ended up playing out, when we did decide to turn on paid social, about three weeks following that was the iOS change. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. Are you noticing a, a, a pattern with the timing? <laughs> yes, I, yeah. It seems like, yeah, all, all the best laid plans, as they say. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, with that, we've had to pivot quite a bit, um, but we have a really strong ambassador network. We're building up um, our marketing team right now. We've had, we're a team of just three marketers right now. Our whole team is eight people, soon to be 10. Um, so still a really lean team. Um, but yeah, the the marketing and PR side has been very interesting because I don't think that anybody anticipated the iOS sweeping changes to have the effect that they did. And so you see a lot of um, direct-to-consumer brands pivoting into retail and making all of these shifts. And it's just been a year of immense amount of pivots. Yes. And we'll go, we'll go into that, but I want to, so you said you didn't do any paid, uh, paid channels for the first 10 months. What, how did you approach the influencer side of things? Were you, were you paying influencers? Were you just sending them product? How did, how did that all work out? Yes, it was very scrappy. Um, I used some of my, my personal relationships, but it was not paid whatsoever. So sending product, you know, what's been great is that with the sustainability piece that most influencers care deeply about with the health piece that this health and wellness community that we're so invested in also care a lot about. And then your palate, right? It's table stakes that, a, that the product has to speak to you on and your palate. And luckily Tash really has a, a high success rate with that. And so it works really well in coffee. It works great in baking. If you're vegan, you can do savory dishes with it. It's very dynamic. It's also incredible on its own. So one of the things that really sets Tash apart is that a lot of people consume it strictly for pure pleasure as a refreshing drink in the afternoon with dessert when they go to bed, even in the morning. So all of these things really worked together to make influencers say, you know what, normally I wouldn't do this without a budget. And in fact, like I have a a policy against it, but I'm willing to work with you. And there's a few of those who have, you know, over a million followers on TikTok and whatnot who were willing to partner with us and are still our partners to date for those reasons. Well, that's great. Um, and so t- what were the pivots that you made when IO- the iOS changes came about? Was it just that you were like, screw digital acquisition, we're only going to focus on you know retail channels? What happened? Yes. So I think we gave it five weeks, five, six weeks. We wanted to see, you know, can we gather some learnings? Can we make this work? But because we had next to no baseline, we didn't have a history and Facebook really need for the marketers to do their job, you really need to have that history with Facebook, which we just didn't have. It was a collective decision that moving, that pausing there was the only choice to make. And so um, I think we're still sort of figuring out the mix, if I'm being honest, right? Like what is, and I think this is true of a lot of brands, especially the young ones like like Tash that launched during the pandemic, it's, it's, we're still gathering learnings. We're still trying to figure out what works best. Where should we put our resources? Um, what isn't working? What are we not going to be distracted by? That's actually something I talk a lot about with our marketing team. What are we 
really sure that is a distraction that we are not going to pursue this year. And I think that's just as important as determining where you are going to put budgets and resources. As a, as a, you know, a CPG brand or like, you know, a consumable brand, how, how are you finding TikTok as a channel? Is it just for brand building? Are you actually, do you, are you able to track conversions through TikTok? I know that mo- like their tracking is not very good. And also yours is a different product than say apparel, which I imagine is easier for people to say, I'm going to buy this right now. But like, wh- what are you seeing with that as a channel? You know, Kale, I'm embarrassed as a former social media founder to be admitting this to you, but I am not <laughs> the authority on TikTok and conversions. Um, we actually, we paused on TikTok in the last really? five, six months. And that's not out of, um, that was just out of a lack of resources and bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are really excited to be growing the team specifically in that channel and um, really like pouring gas on it because we see the value in it and it, it just fits so well with Tash. Makes sense. Um, so let's talk about retail. What What is the retail strategy been um, for that last year and this year? Has it been focused specifically on, you know, coffee shops or like, or, or what, have you been looking into other retail locations as well? Yeah, absolutely. So retail is actually going to be kicking off for us uh, Q4 this year. So to zoom out for a second, we launched direct-to-consumer and food service. Retail was part of our plan for late 2023. We actually were approached by some some great retail outlets like Foxtrot and Erewhon, and we were part of Foxtrot's up-and-comers program, actually. And so when we got on shelf at all of the Foxtrot locations, we were the number three selling alt milk out of the 26 uh, alt milks that they carried. Yeah. And so great case study for us, but um, we've only been in a couple s- select retailers um, since we've launched, but um, we're really excited to launch into some of the larger chains uh, at the end of this year and really focus heavily on natural retail. So Sprouts, Whole Foods uh, in 2023. Got it. Well, so what is the reason you've been slow to be in retail locations just because you haven't had the bandwidth as a company or is it that you're trying to be as strategic with your placement as possible? Yes, it's a kind of, it's a combination of both of those. Um, one of my investors once said each channel is its own three ring circus. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so we, we have had a lot of success in food service and there is still a lot of green pasture there. And so focusing on DTC and food service for our first year and a half was really our focus, but now we're ready to layer in another channel and we're excited to, to really, um, dive in to the natural channel followed by more mass and whatnot. Makes sense. So what is the current break breakdown between food service and DTC right now? Is it 50, 50? It's 50, 50. Wow. It's, it's stayed strong since the beginning, which is so surprising in a number of ways. that's amazing. And so do you, I mean, do you do anything specifically in the food service? I feel like with a lot of, especially brands that are in food service, there's issues with brand building. And yours is a special case because there aren't that many pistachio milks out there. So I imagine you go to pistachiomilk.com, they're coming directly to you. But like, what are what are you doing? Are you doing anything specifically to try and make it so that people know that when they are at this coffee shop, they are getting your product? Yes, absolutely. So we always try to create bespoke opportunities with our coffee shop partners. So like with Verve, for instance, we did an orange blossom pistachio milk latte that we created specifically with their R&D team. And when possible, of course, we try and include Tash 
on menu. So it's, you know, it's on menu, it's POS, it's ordering online, all those touch points. It's not always possible to have Tash included in the in the name of the specialty drink, but that's what we strive for. Even so, the other pistachio milks that are on the market, um, they're not true barista blends. So it's rather easy to figure out like, okay, it's pistachio milk. Let me figure out which brand that is. But um, we also do, you know, activations, events, all of these things that we weren't able to do during our first year in market um, with various coffee shop partners, influencers, ambassadors. So whether it's at Lay Apartment, which is this new bakery in Brooklyn that is widely loved, amazing community, and Coffee Bay, having a party, um, an event with them. All these kinds of things are the ways that we try and make sure that Tash really shines through beyond just the pistachio milk. Got it. Got it. Um, and do you, I mean, how, what are you thinking the piece of the pie is going to be down the line in a couple of years? Do you think DTC is going to stay as strong? I know that, you know, for a company like yours, it's expensive to ship out things. So you probably, you know, you make better margins, but also it's, you're dealing with a lot of different logistic issues. So what, what are you, what are your hopes in terms of what the revenue pie is going to be, let's say three years down the line? Yeah. So I think what will happen for, for, in our case, to your point, it's our, Case is a 14-pound package. Yeah. Yeah. So I think food service will be our primary revenue driver this year. Next year, it probably will actually turn into retail. Mm -hmm. Um, And then retail will continue to be the primary revenue driver from there out. Got it. Got it. And sort of, and what is your what is your marketing strategy going down the line? Is it just sort of continuing to test and learn? You mentioned these events. Are you going to be focusing more on these events and these influencer activations? Yes, absolutely. We're going to be doing more of that, more out of home. You will see some trucks in the New York York City area wrapped in Tash branding, which we're really excited about. We have a lot in the works. Um, Some of it I'm going to leave at elusively, but, um, just a lot of new opportunities that we actually haven't even dabbled into before, mm-hmm. um, that will start to be sprinkled out later this summer. Have you done out of home before? We haven't. Okay. We haven't. I was going to, okay. Um, yes. I want to go back a little bit cause you mentioned it earlier, but I'm, I'm so fascinated with Foxtrot and I think that there are a lot of, um, startup companies that either want to get placement or like have questions about. So how did you view that partnership? Was it a brand building partnership? Was it a convenience partnership or was it a revenue driving partnership or something different? Yeah. Great question. It was really rooted actually in the up and comers competition that they do annually. So another brand recommended that we participate. So we submitted and actually long before they chose a winner, Foxtrot reached out to us and said, Hey, I know we're reviewing your application, but we love the branding. We love the product. We would love to bring you into all of our retail locations and into our coffee shops because many of them have the food service component with the coffee shop within. Mm -hmm. And so we were really thrilled because it's a, it's a, it's a twofer for us, right? That's great. Yep. And so um, we went into all of their coffee shops, all of their retail locations, as I mentioned, became the number three selling alt milk with them. And um, at that point, um, the fact that we lost the up and comers <laughs> competition was quite all right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was great. I mean, great for brand building, great for awareness. Um, I think that uh, growing with them has been has been really lovely. That's awesome. Um so you mentioned all of the 
the marketing things that are on the horizon with some some things that, that remain elusive. But what yes. are are there more products on the horizon as well, or are you going to stay true to these four for now and then just try and grow their their cachet? Yeah. So we always say that Tash is not a pistachio milk company. Okay. Tash is a pistachio company, and ah. so while while we're going to stay very focused on beverage for the near term, we do have plans to grow into food and to other beverage categories. I think what's really incredible about our market and plant-based and dairy alternatives is that it's burgeoning and there's everything from cashew-based cheese to cauliflower-based pizza crust and everything in between. And pistachios really have a home in all of these categories. And we believe that Tash is going to be the brand to bring some of these categories, to bring pistachios to some of these categories. And we're really excited about that. So we could see a pistachio cheese on the horizon is what you're saying? I'm not making any promises, Kale. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, Roxana, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.